I'm Jim Knight, co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on the people around us. Welcome to the inaugural Coaching Conversations. Zaretta Hammond is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, which has become required reading in many teacher education programs and school districts. As a former classroom teacher, she taught composition, expository writing, where she started to understand how important literacy was to equity and how neuroscience and culture should inform instructional practice. Since leaving the classroom, Zaretta has done work as a curriculum designer and professional developer at organizations such as the National Equity Project, and the Annenberg-funded Bay Area School Reform Collaborative in the San Francisco Bay Area. He's a trained facilitator in anti-bias processes and has facilitated groups focused on learning to talk about issues of racial politics and privilege. Her primary work has been linking instruction, equity, and literacy. She has spent time as an adjunct instructor at St. Mary's College in Northern California, where she taught adolescent literacy and trained tutors and parents in reading support strategies for struggling students of color. For the past 25 years, Zaretta has maintained a small independent education consulting practice from which she does research and writing, as well as supported schools doing deep instructionally focused equity work. Zaretta has taught me so much about equity and many other things. I'm grateful for all the conversations we've had. She always educates me in public, essentially what happens. And that's what happened in this conversation. So let's get to it. Let's get to the conversation. So welcome, Zaretta. I'm excited to have our conversation. Thank you for having me. It's always good to talk to you. I love it. I feel I'm, I'm, I'm the winner here on this one. I'm grateful for the <laughs> chance. So I think it's really fun. Um, so I've been starting off with this uh, kind of uh, funny question. What's something that uh, people don't know about you just to kind of break the ice? So is there something you've got to share? I think that people would um, be surprised at how much I am a Marvel superhero fan. <laughs> really, like diehard to the point where I watch the movies over and over again, and my husband gets irritated because I start to recite dialogue. And um, I'm a big movie, movie uh, fan. And I've been that way since like 10. You know, give me a dark theater, interesting movies across genres, but uh, Superhero Fair is my favorite. So any particular heroes that really are, we should have done this on Superhero Day, which was like two days ago. So any particular heroes that stand out? You know, Wakanda Forever, Black Panther's right up there. Um, Captain America, you know, the world's greatest hero. Right. right. I love the Avengers, the whole pantheon of Avengers, right? Each one has their special thing and how they come together. But something about the action with the character, with the comic element, I love it. You know, ta Coates was our, one of our keynoters at the Teaching Learning Coaching Conference last year. And, uh, uh, I think you can see when you read his novel, you can see that um, how his writing Black Panther and other comics has shaped the way in which he constructs the plot. I mean, you can, there's, there's something about how that, you wouldn't see it unless you've read both worlds, but it it struck me as interesting. Absolutely. Well, I'm obsessed with the hero's journey, right? I was a major and you see it permeating in movies all the time, right at the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm a huge fan of. So um, yeah, anytime I can kind of do that 
uh, escapism, but also a little analysis. That's always fun. That's the right. Both yeah, well, Black Panther is intellectually stimulating, uh, even in the midst of uh, good guys and bad guys fighting it out. Right. So. So tell me a bit about, uh, just to get started, um, how your experiences in school inspired you to write culturally responsive teaching. You start the book off by talking about uh, going to school in San Francisco. Yeah, I grew up in San Francisco, born and raised here. My grandparents came out to San Francisco in 1940. That last wave of black migration out of the deep south to the north and very interesting um, that my grandparents were able to buy a house in a largely white and Asian community uh, in the Richmond district of San Francisco, not far from Ocean Beach. Uh, and so the neighborhood school was predominantly white and Asian. And my mother was a teen parent. She, we lived across town in the projects. She decided to use my uh, grandparents, her parents' address to send us to school. So she put us on the public transportation, two hours to school, two hours back home by ourselves because mom had to go to work. Now, what was interesting is I didn't have language for it, but I started to see that what my peers on the playground back home were getting was very different than what I was getting. What I was experiencing in terms of narratives about who I was as a person of color, as a woman of color, or a girl of color at that time, I really didn't have language for it, but I knew there was something that was inequitable and it just set me on a path so you know the kind of the rest is history because I started to see how reading development was really uh, a key piece I looked at kind of the neuroscience <clears throat> and the more I started to understand how I get my students to level up their learning the more I was making the connection to my own experience and drawing from that experience so it really shaped me in a lot of ways a lot of significant ways I don't believe any child should have to take a bus two hours to school to get a decent education. Every neighborhood school, regardless of its racial composition, should be high quality. Um, but we know there are a lot of ways inequity shows up in our education system across the country. So that really shaped me in um, some ways that, looking back on it, may felt negative, but out of that came an inquiry and a mission. As Dan said, he's absolutely right. Very mission-driven around making sure that uh, all children have access to high-quality education and become empowered learners. Because you experienced it in terms of having high-quality education. And then when the high school students came into your school years later, you were able to look at them and say, they haven't had the same experience as me, and that's not fair. And yeah, so absolutely. that's... So moving on to the next question. So you've... You, you're not the person to, uh, and you're very clear that you didn't coin the phrase culture responsive teaching, but you certainly popularized the phrase so that it's become a way people are starting to understand that education can do what you want. It can be more equitable. And when we talked last time, you told me that um, engagement comes when we're doing complex cognitive work that's fun. So tell me a bit about how we do that. How do we create challenging and fun learning experiences and then i have a second question i should probably save but now i got to go with it um do you have any thoughts about how we can do that at this time during remote yeah. learning 
Yeah, I, I do. And let me take the first part of that question right. because I think there are a couple of things and I want to just kind of clarify. I don't think I'm making culturally responsive to teaching popular, right? Mm -hmm. Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings, Asa Hilliard, um, there are a lot of other scholars of color from indigenous communities, um, uh, Hispanic communities, even Asian communities where there is diversity in that Asian uh, community. There's not a monolith, there's not a, a, a um, you know, minority that is always achieving. There's diversity in every group. But what we know is there have been people who have talked about what are the conditions that actually help students thrive. And we know what those are. And they're not just talking about implicit bias, but coupling that with really powerful instruction. So I think I'm just trying to curate what is out there so people can see. We're not mm -hmm. making new things up. So that's an important piece. But the piece I do think I have tried to lift up to higher relief is the instructional piece, that we really have to help students feel like they're empowered. And that doesn't just mean academic mindset or a lot of people you know, think about growth mindset or grit. Well, a lot of our students that come from uh, inner cities or low income uh, or immigrant families have a lot of grit. They've got like double grit and resilience and part of that is we don't leverage it we don't respect it in the sense that if they come in a different way we don't recognize their assets or their genius or their capacity so getting kids to do complex work is not a matter of just kind of telling them they need to get a different mindset or trying to get to them to be motivated or engaged quote unquote a lot of times people talk about culturally responsive teaching as a teaching as an engagement strategy. Well, it's so much more than that. And it is not just a thing. So how do we get complex work to feel fun? This is where I think the neuroscience is so exciting. The idea of dopamine in our brain, it's the stickiest thing when it happens, when it's released in our brains, next to us doing really, really hard stuff that we want to do hard, more hard things, right? So getting kids to do complex work so it feels like fun is getting that brain to release that dopamine. So this is where teachers have to know more about the science of learning and how that plays out in pedagogy versus just some kind of canned engagement strategies. So this is about complex thinking and really productive struggle in fun ways you know kids will sit for hours playing video games that's productive struggle and the reason they'll sit for hours is they're getting a dopamine hit to try and progress so the progress principle becomes a really key thing it has to be coupled with showing kids that they're getting better competence precedes confidence mm -hmm. yes i remember um a child I knew pretty well uh, who had a diagnosed learning disability. Basically, he was the school was saying he's not really capable of learning. Well, he mastered some video game over the Christmas holidays, and he was able to uh, teach his high school cousins how to play it. And he knew the thing inside out, but they would, he was told he wasn't a very good learner. Well, how did he learn that in three days if he's such a terrible learner? And that progress principle, that idea of just continuous improvement and growth, um, that's, a, that's a powerful, powerful part of it. So that, I want to I 
go there in terms of, well, what does this have to do with distance learning, right? Mm -hmm. How can it be relevant? So what we're trying to do during kind of remote learning, right, distance teaching, mm -hmm. is this very thing. We're trying to help students actually engage in improvement, right? Rather than, here, I need you to learn new content, why not help them consolidate, make connections, deepen the content you've already taught them? strengthen their learning to learn skills. This is a great time for that. And using formative assessment where they get to see, oh, week one, I didn't know how to do that. Week two, I can do it better. Week three, oh, look at me. So that progress principle is really a key piece to helping kids do complex work. I think this provides kids an opportunity to go deeper on things that they might not have had if they were trying to hit every standard and every lesson all the time. So if they have a real passion for sharks, they can go deep into learning about sharks. And then as they develop their competence, that that's going to build the confidence. You know? So this is to me where coaches can support teachers as they're thinking about what's the plan, what should go in that packet. So rather than just new stuff or worksheets, we should be thinking about helping teachers really start to uh, create kind of the thinking routines, right? How do we start to think about it? What are the connections between uh, this thing you learned last week and this thing? So making those connections so kids talk about it or what I call chew on the content. So mm -hmm. coaches can be really supportive of teachers to help them have that other eye on that planning to say, where am I asking kids to chew on the content? Am I asking them to make connections? Are they actually engaged in some kind of productive struggle, taking things apart, putting them back together? So being able to see that as kind of a common thread versus here's a new unit, we just need to get kids through the unit. So we just have to dial it back. But coaches are, are in a unique position to be able to support teachers and to show them that there is science in that kind of dialing back. We're not lowering our expectation. What we're doing is focusing on the small but high leverage learning practices that will actually help deepen students' uh, uh, learning. Mm -hmm. I, um, I've been struck by how important coaches are right now. And I think at first, everything seemed to come down around March 13th, 12th, uh, around about then. And at first, uh, a lot of coaches were like, what the heck am I going to do? And now they're running off their feet because people are like, how do I help me figure this out? It seems like the coaches have, they have shown right now just how important they are to professional learning in schools. Well, I always think instructional coaches are the linchpin because they are the ones that are going to help teachers kind of expand their capacity. They need to be shoulder to shoulder and able to guide. So I think what's least helpful is just to say, oh, let's make everything culturally responsive because that blanket term means nothing. But when we understand as instructional coaches, how do I help the student chew on the content? How am I leveraging their funds of knowledge? How do I help the teacher get that information? When we break the uh, um, idea of culturally responsive into the parts of the ready for rigor frame, learning partnerships, information processing, building a community of learners, awareness of how to use cultural as culture as both an affective lens, the social emotional aspect of that, but also the cognition aspect, right? It's the schema. How do we deepen background knowledge, leveraging that? 
then the coach is able to see where teachers need more support, where they already have some skills, and then you can augment that. So as you say in coaching, you know, where's the strategic knowledge coming in? So mm -hmm. coaching is not just asking them more questions, but it's bringing this strategic knowledge. And sometimes it's in that kind of um, planning question. Where is the chewing here? How do we build on students' interest? How is that leveraging their funds of knowledge? These can be questions that the coach helps the teacher go through every time they're planning together a set of uh, activities or a packet to send home for distance learning. Could you say a bit more about the progress principle, what that is and yeah. why it's important? I think this is so cool, right? I fell into neuroscience trying to figure out how to help my um, uh, community college students become better writers. They showed up very with low confidence in their capacity as learners, period. Lots of tears. And I started to realize that uh, um, I needed to better understand kind of what was going on. Uh, in their brains. And one of the things I discovered is our brains have this thing called the progress principle, meaning when we know we're getting better at something, we lean into it more. We'll mm -hmm. stick with it more. We'll put the effort into it more. This is why it's kind of backwards to think that students will actually be engaged or motivated just because of some academic mindset. Again, my mantra is always competence precedes confidence. The more students can build their competence, I can do that and can see they can do it, they will hang in there. So the way in which our, this is why we wear Fitbits, right? And um, pedometers and, you know, chart right. how much, we do it all the time. These, because we know the more the brain knows, hey, look, you're, this is hard, but you're still making progress. Even if it's little progress, you get a dopamine hit. And that dopamine is that sticky, yummy stuff the brain loves. And it says, whatever you were doing to get that dopamine hit, let's do it again. So now you want to do the hard stuff. So I think being able to understand that part of neuroscience as a design principle, where will I help them? This is what Vygotsky talks about in the zone of proximal development, right? Connecting kind of the stuff we learn in ed school with that's actually on the ground, what we need to make sure is happening, but in ways that still leverages students' um, funds of knowledge, right? What they bring as assets, what they know, or what their interests are. It's the same thing Chiksan Mahai says in his book, Flow, that the really engaging part is the thing that's just a little bit more challenging than your skill level. Just a tiny bit. The sweet spot for learning is just a little bit above your skill level. If it's way above it, you're freak out. And if it's way below it, you're bored. So, and, and then as, go ahead. Okay. <laughs> See, I guess. Well, as, your as your skills develop, you need more increasingly challenging material to keep you in that sweet spot. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like weightlifting, right? Or or I running a marathon, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Or so I've heard, you know, running a <laughs> marathon. Um, but the idea that you don't just like, I'm going to sign up for the 26-mile marathon and go sit on the couch right. with the, the marathon. That the in, way that you build lung capacity is a little, but you got to go a little further each time, right? Mm -hmm. and, oh, that's okay, right. I can make it five miles, but now i got to stretch myself. And that six miles is going to feel like you're dying. But over a few weeks, it's going to feel like you can do it in a breeze to the point where you build this capacity. That's what I mean by competence. How are you building the mm -hmm. student's capacity to do more work? So the question for instructional coaches to hold as they support 
teachers is for them to look at the unit and say, who's carrying the cognitive load? Because when we were in school, in classrooms, too often the teacher was carrying too much of the cognitive load. We were over scaffolding. Now it's happening because there's no opportunity for us to over scaffold. We're a little worried. Like, Mm -hmm. well, the student won't do it. The brain is a natural learning machine. So when it goes back to seed, so to speak, right? When it goes back into the wild, it will continue to learn. What we need to do during distance learning is leveraging that natural way in which it wants to learn, but it will seek it out in terms of interest. And if you can couple new things where you can start to extend that, um, then it becomes a really interesting endeavor for the student, particularly the older the student is, the more you're going to need to do that. Mm -hmm. Young kids are more compliant, right? Right. Do the packet because the teacher says you do it. But by the time we get to fourth, fifth grade, mm, it's kind of iffy. So you have a lot of teachers, a lot of folks who are worried that there's not 100% participation in distance learning. But if you can tap that dopamine, they're going to participate, not right. because you said so, but because this is intellectual, intellectually uh, um, interesting. You mm-hmm. have to be able to ignite that intellectual curiosity. So that's another design principle. Where is the intellectual curiosity ignited? When you uh, talk with the people sometimes they'll say that you have to encourage people and you have to say nice things and uh, praise students so they succeed but what I've seen is what builds confidence is success and and when kids are getting what you're calling that dopamine hit when they're seeing progress and they're moving forward kids who people have written off who said that kid can't learn will go look at how I'm doing here and they're way more interested in the learning than people realize, but they give up if they're, if it's too challenging or it's too boring, they need to be in that sweet spot. They do. And here's the other thing. When you get in the sweet spot and that productive struggle, if I've been told I'm a not a good learner or kids that look like you don't learn, this is that the, the implicit bias or the dominant narratives around who's a good learner, who isn't that have to get challenged. And so when kids have gotten these messages, they have a tendency to say, why put in the effort? Because now I start to believe these messages. So you have to also help in the midst of trying, in the midst of stretching, in the midst of that, you have to help the student rewrite that internal self-talk. And there are a variety of interesting ways to do that. And they're kids. So they don't have a fully developed narrative about who they are. And I mean, it's hard enough as an adult to have a really productive, positive narrative about your life. Add to that if you're getting uh, uh, societal messages that, uh, narratives around racial difference. So we mm-hmm. have those that, you know, for example, African Americans aren't as intelligent as white people. Now, most people would not say that out loud, but the reality is it's implied. And that is a narrative that's floating around that gets acted upon, even if it's not vocalized. Mm-hmm. Now, kids start to push back on some of those narratives, then they get in trouble, or the ways that they show up learning or having genius are not recognized. So they're, therefore now, again, they're being told they're not good learners. So again, when people want to talk about culturally responsive teaching, you have to think kind of like a zipper, two pieces go together. You have to be able to have counter narratives and see where there are dominant narratives that are impacting how you are actually treating students. Because there's a way that you can be a paternalistic sentimentalist 
right? And dumbing mm-hmm. down like, oh, poor baby, or, you know, oh, they come from a, a, a poor home. Not over, you're and totally overlooking the assets that those families have. Um, and that is just as damaging as a microaggression or deficit orientation as somebody who's using the N-word or some other kind of more forceful negative uh, um, narratives about certain groups of people. So let's say there, and there will be, there are people listening now and they're, they're saying, you know, I don't know what my bias is, but I, I think I agree that implicit bias is real. What can they do to become more aware of uh, their bias? How can we, how can we, become conscious of the ways in which we limit other people because of uh, biases we're not even conscious of. So I think the, the question has to be flipped. One of the ways that keeps us stuck around issues of implicit bias is we keep thinking it's an individual failing. Oh, mm-hmm. I need to see my biases. Just even the way you stated that, right? It sounds right. Like I need to be aware of my blind spots. But the reason you individually as a white man have blind spots is because there has been set up a system of white supremacy and who's on top, who's on bottom that's being sold as this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. And so we get socialized into these racial narratives. So the first thing you have to do is learn the racial narratives of our country. We are a country born of apartheid. But a lot of people don't understand that our racial history. So before you can start to look at your own biases, you actually have to learn the racial literacy history. You have to actually build up your racial literacy. Some people don't have the emotional stamina yet because they don't want to believe that it's this inequitable. This is the work around white fragility you have Mm -hmm. to do. Because you can't even look at those. You can't stand in, in, in the full light of day to look at your own if you haven't understood how this country has been shaped. Mm-hmm. Right? And there are a lot of people who want to do right by children who don't know the racial history of this country. For indigenous community folk, for uh, uh, enslaved Africans and their descendants, for uh, Hispanic and Latin uh, ex uh, folks who have been here before. Folks were here before, other folks were, but if you actually ask teachers about the racial history of the United States, many can't tell you all the ins and outs of it. So that's your first order of business. Once you understand that and understand structural racialization, now you're able to triangulate and say, what narratives did I grow up hearing? Mm-hmm. What did I accept as, oh, that's the way it is, right? So you have to actually do that work in relationship to this understanding of kind of the social, political context of America. So I've got a couple of questions. These are kind of goofy questions. You can just say skip if you, they don't make sense. But um, the first part is, the first part I think makes sense. The second part is the goofy part. But um, people want to feel like they're doing good. They want to feel like they're, they're, they're good people. And that's why we have defense mechanisms that keep us from seeing things clearly because, uh, I mean, if you really could see your life in all its nakedness in terms of your intent and all the things you do wrong, it'd be hard to really look at it. 
if you really saw life the way it is. So part of part of the mix here in terms of implicit bias, I'm thinking, is just the fact people they don't want to believe they're not good people, and so that that makes I, it hard. Go ahead. Okay, I'm gonna let you finish because I. You well, know, I'm no, let's go there. Well, let's hear your part because I'll save my I, goofy I part for later. I, I, and this is what I love about our conversations, Jim. Right? We always find a way to have these conversations. I think that what you're saying is very limited because it's still a very individualistic cultural orientation. Mm-hmm. It's about the individual. I'm a good person. Right. You still first have to acknowledge the way society has tried to sort people. Mm-hmm. that are outcomes for people moving through the school system and moving through life is uh, structured to have racialized outcomes. Mm-hmm. So I can't even start to say I'm a good person until I understand that history. So this is where I think we could have a whole longer conversation as to are white people ready to build their racial literacy? Do they really understand that? And this is not just having a social justice platform. This is like, I really understand how this works. This is not about hating white people or just looking at white privilege and giving yourself a a, a guilt trip around white privilege. This is just understanding how the system was set up. Mm -hmm. Then you can look at yourself and do that work. But, you know, the place where we would just have to, you know, uh, uh, kind of put our, our, our paws on is, I don't think you can do that work of even reflection around a good person until you can understand the depths of the racial literacy you need to have. Hmm. And this is why it's not always a black white conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because the reality is most black people, most people of color, black and brown people already have that depth of racial literacy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of white people are like, oh, I'm just learning about this. So being able to really understand how that works becomes really critical. So, yeah, I think we'll put a pause on that. Because we yeah, won't go down a rabbit hole, brother. <laughs> no, but that's good. That's good. That's, you know, it's funny. Um, growing up in Canada and then moving to the States, I moved here uh, in 1993. Um, it's, uh, Canada has uh, a terrible history. Uh, I think, in terms of treatment of Aboriginal cultures, and uh, it's it's by no means um, perfect, but it's different. So uh, I remember just driving across the border and listening to the radio. There was so much conversation about race, and I thought, man, in Canada, people are just people. You know, it wasn't everything seemed different here, and it's it, what you're making me think is it has a lot to do with the history. You know, and I'm not well, trying to say Canada is perfect because it's not, but it it feels different there. You know, we, we won't put a pause on it, Jim. <laughs> okay. brother, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Right. Okay. We, we can actually dig into that too. Listen, right. truth and reconciliation. Read what Indigenous people are saying about their treatment in Canada. Mm-hmm. Trauma, genocide. It is happened, still going on. Right. So this idea of how we whitewash, pun intended, uh-huh. history is part of the first piece that white educators, instructional coaches, teacher leaders need to do. This is not we need to go and just have kind of some kind of courageous conversation or encounter group. I need to go get my biases. You first need to understand your history. Because mm-hmm. people aren't making things up as to mm-hmm. why they are outcomes, but the outcomes are as they are, the achievement gaps as 
are as they are. But here's the thing that's happening. We're blaming parents and kids. It's so the same we, thing with disability, though. But here's we the thing. the kids for the disability when the problem is probably the instruction they're getting. Absolutely. But we're talking about culturally responsive teaching. I'm not mm -hmm. minimizing dis yeah, disability. Yeah. But what I'm saying is we continue to racialize. Let's look at the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. The majority of people who are dying are people of color. Why? Mm -hmm. Because chronic racism erodes your immune system. Mm -hmm. So the social emotional piece of that leads to a chronic uh, um, assault of stress on your system. So again, I think in, in the, the degree to which people start to understand what weathering is, it's an actual term in medicine of the impact of racism on the physical health, not just the mental health, but literally the physical mm -hmm. health of the body. So this is why we see larger uh, 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 numbers of disease and disorder in communities of color versus the narrative that says those people just don't take care of themselves. Right, right. Those people, you know, engage in too much drinking and, 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 and drug abuse. These are the narratives. Right. They should, it's, yeah, they're just not trying hard enough. That's what we hear. And so yeah. what I want to do is to help people understand, yes, we have narratives around disability, but our most pressing and most invisible narratives are the narratives of racial difference, and they show up first in schools. And we mm -hmm. see that the research is really clear who gets the challenging work. Who mm -hmm. doesn't get the challenging work? So now when we're talking about distance learning, we have to be looking at, are we actually allowing students to get ready for rigor? So it's not just giving them more rigor. You don't want to throw them in the deep end. Right. Of what you want to do is get them ready for rigor. That's why my framework is called get <laughs> ready for rigor. rigor. Um, you know, that's why my Twitter handle is ready for rigor because we forget the student is a unit of change. Mm -hmm. The reason I think in, uh, uh, instructional coaches are the linchpin is because I think they can help the teacher keep the student at the center during planning, during professional learning, when they're looking in the classroom. If we stop peddling strategies, and actually help teachers become the personal trainers of students' cognitive development, we will see a shift. And when we understand the way that inequity was hardwired into our system was to underdevelop the cognitive capacity of students. This is why we had illiteracy laws. Those laws weren't against black and brown people and indigenous people. Those laws were designed for white people. You will topple the system that is built on white supremacy if you teach those people to read. You will lose your privilege around whiteness. Whiteness became currency. Read the color of law. That's in, you know, documented. And you will lose your land. You will lose your liberty. We will put you in jail. So we maintain that by underdeveloping because we know reading changes the brain. That's why those two things for me are always important. So here's the thing I want to connect to what we're doing right now. For teachers who want to be responsive to students, I want to just say, let go of the term culturally responsive. Coaches help teachers understand that you are actually working on one of those four quadrants and helping students to build their capacity, reading development, building background knowledge. So one of the things I see is a lot of stories, right? 
let's put a pause on the stories and do more nonfiction, right? The Common Core, whether a state is following that or not, suggested we needed to shift the amount of fiction and include more nonfiction. Why? Because nonfiction builds schema. It builds background knowledge. The more background knowledge you have, the more your reading comprehension goes up. The more your word knowledge goes up. Word wealth is the other thing. How do you start to help the student do robust word study? You don't need technology for any of those. You can send that packet home and say in two weeks. One of the things I would love to see, Jim, is if teachers were able, with the support of their coaches, to put these inquiry boxes together where there's some word wealth, the building background knowledge around some interests that uh, uh, students, they've, they've kind of curated for students. And every two weeks they get an interesting box that would keep them busy so they're chewing, they're learning new content, they're making connections. I love the thinking routines that Ron Rickhart um, uh, put out in making thinking visible. I used to think, but now I think, right? Parts, purpose, complexities as ways and lenses for students to start to internalize. That's what we could do. And none of that requires the internet. Right. So let's talk about our current situation. Um, and we have been talking. Why well, didn't you ask me my goofy question? So I better give you my goofy question. So my, my goofy question is, um, we, uh, I used to play hockey in Canada. I was never really good, but I loved it. And uh, so when I was a graduate student at University of Toronto, I used to get together with this group of people who play hockey. And we played together, and, was, and what would happen is you'd put your sticks in the middle of the ice, and then you'd throw the sticks, and we didn't know whose it was. They would all go to one side or the other side, and then, and then that was your team. Wherever your stick went, that's the team you played with that week. And every week it was different, and it was always kind of easygoing and fun. And then the um, guy who organized it bought us all sweaters, and we had um, two different colored sweaters. And, and uh, uh, once we started to wear the sweaters, we really didn't like those other people who had the different colored sweaters, to the point where we stopped playing. The thing ended just by that little change. And you'll see it, I'll see it in uh, like comments on uh, sports things. H hostile, hateful things people say just because they like that team versus this team. You know, and that team has got the player that was on their team two years ago. It's just the color of their shirt. So does that have any kind of, does that? inform our understanding of what's happening now in any way. What do you, what do you think? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. Like no? I said, we could go down that road. Uh-huh. Like, we won't keep it tame for the Facebook. Right. <laughs> but literally, this is why I so enjoy talking with you, because we do. We have these lively conversations. And right. the complexities of that, which you just highlighted, you can't strip away the the racial dynamic in this country and how we've tried to normalize this. You don't mm -hmm. buy, sell, and breed people for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that like, oh, you know, we did try that for 10 years and that was a bad idea. We did this generation after generation after generation for 400 years. So this is more than sweaters and teams. Right. But it is hardwired into our American way, our Canadian way, our Australian way. 
Right. This is called colonization. This mm -hmm. is called apartheid. This is called, this is why I'm saying this is a bigger conversation. And what we don't want to do is trivialize it or oversimplify it. It has right. historical dimensions that have levels of ration, irrationality. You don't buy, sell, and breed people and not recognize that this is more than a little odd. Well, we that's great. It. We've done it around the world. And again, we have, there has to be some healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. And until particularly white Americans, white Canadians, white people around the world take the lead in understanding that and not just trying to push it away, don't blame me, we won't see truth and reconciliation. America has decided not to do that. South Africa started that. That is the mm. beginning of healing, spiritual healing around the deep racial divides that were created and continue. Here's the thing I want to say, given what you're talking about. Let's talk about the racial narratives of uh, the, the narratives of racial difference. One of the narratives is people of African descent, black people are criminals. So we saw this recently played out. Again, people don't say that to each other, but how white people are socialized, young man jogging through a community, two people in a house came out and said, there's a black man running in our community. He must have stolen something and they shot him dead. This happened just the other day. The week before, a doctor, getting PPE, loaded in a truck, getting ready to take it to uh, a community clinic. He had a mask on his face, as was required. He was an African-American man in front of his house. Stuff had been in his garage. Police car rolls by, and the videotape is on, online. Rolls by, sees a black man with a mask on his face, and he immediately gets out, puts the black man in handcuffs, and assumes he's stealing. Why? Because these are dominant narratives. Brian Stevenson talks about three of those. So what I want us to be able to do is to be a little more nuanced. This is not just about, oh, I need to, to get rid of my biases. Oh, we just, you know, it's about teams. We have some deep stuff happening. So we don't want to oversimplify it. There are connections to the teamness or the tribalness and nativeness that we see happening in our country but a lot of it is still rooted in racism. So what does an instructional coach do then? Um, <laughs> About that? Yeah. I mean, uh, what, if I'm an instructional coach, what's, what, what are my next steps? What are the things I need to do to... That is a hard pivot. I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying give me a, a cheat sheet. I know you don't like cheat sheets, but... Oh, I'm just I'm, saying going from talking about implicit bias to saying what does an instructional coach do? Because an instructional coach has to work in the sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. That sphere of influence is the, with the teacher and the students, right? This is uh, uh, Richard Elmore talks about the instructional core. That's where our work is. So there are larger things that we're concerned about, racism, implicit bias, and those things that we may not change. Here's the thing that I would say. We can help teachers create counter narratives. So if you hear teachers saying those sorts of things, you can have that counter narrative and help that teacher actually see a new way, a reframe. I think the other thing is when we understand the power of literacy and reading and writing development to change the brain, so the brain can carry more of that cognitive load, that is a social justice and agenda. 
I, I need to make sure every child is reading and writing at the high level, not by, you know, uh, effort and I just need to, to push them to do it, but by engaging their natural curiosity mm -hmm. to be readers and writers and thinkers. How do we leverage that? I really think that is where instructional coaches have a lot of power to advance equity agendas. And the more your sphere of influence expands, Steve Covey talks about this in the seven habits of highly right. effective people. He says, then you can influence those areas you're concerned about. So we can't take on implicit bias head on as coaches, right? Here's why it will, it will trigger the amygdala. You can't get a group mm -hmm. of teachers in the room. It's like, now we're going to talk about white privilege. Well, that's the quickest way to shut something down. Right. Instead, let's say who's carrying the cognitive load. And if we are going to say it's not because a student doesn't want to try, let's just close that door. What other things could we be thinking about doing if we want to help the student change that? So the instructional coach can help teachers reframe rather than just blame. And I think that's a that's why I think they're the linchpin, because they are the personal trainer and capacity builder for those teachers. Listen, Serena Williams, the GOAT of all time, has a coach. Now, what is the coach teaching Serena? He is a pair of eyes in places she can't see, and he's giving her corrective feedback. Your elbow's dropping here. Why don't you try this? So she gets muscle memory. She tries it and takes her through kind of the, the iteration and prototyping and knowing it's going to be failure, but they learn from the errors. Errors are information. If coaches can help teachers see that we're going to prototype this, yeah, the first time, mm, maybe it wasn't great, but what can we learn from that? That's what I love about the impact cycle. When you bring strategic knowledge around using culturally responsive practice as a turbocharger in a discipline, it is not a discipline. It is a turbocharger for literacy. It's a turbocharger for science. It's a turbocharger for history and social studies. But if you don't understand how to apply the turbocharge, you won't get juice out of culturally responsive no, no. teaching. Yeah. Well, yeah, we could, we could spend a lot of time on that one too. Right. I think, um, so I've got to, I, I, I want to uh, just uh, ask you, is there uh, anything else you'd like to say about um, this particular time where we're experiencing COVID-19 quarantine? Yeah. Any other insights or um, uh, suggestions for educators you'd like to share? I think a couple of suggestions. I did a couple of webinars. One was parents as first teachers. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to remember that parents have been teachers. They taught their children, they socialized them. They may not know pedagogy, but if you've potty trained a human being, you know some pedagogy, mm -hmm. right? So we have to be in partnership with parents in a different way. And this situation is gonna reveal how, how strong your partnership is. So maybe you can't build a whole new relationship, but you can start to build trust. Ask the parent how they are. Being able to kind of that social emotional piece becomes so important in terms of building trust so that you have that relationship. But also give the parent that position to help students to build their and maintain 
their literacy skills, right? So we're not trying to do new things, but we're trying to just deepen what's there. So have parents, you know, play games, learning games with them or word games. Taboo is a word game. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres has the heads up game, right? All these in which there's word play. That's a really key thing. So small but high leverage learning practices that are easily handed off to parents to do because they look like games, right? Hide the vegetables. You're not having to teach parents how to do complicated math. You're helping them play games with their kids that help reinforce and consolidate their learning so there's no learning loss. I think that's a key thing. Uh, deepening background knowledge. This is a great time to encourage kids within the parameters of maybe a standard you're trying to teach to find their own interest and start making connections so that that background knowledge is deepened. There's so much we can do that does not require technology, doesn't require the teacher, the parent to be, you know, now become a certified teacher, but to go back to that natural role. Uh, leveraging the funds of knowledge. There are things that parents are doing at home um, and, and that are very natural. For example, one of the activities I suggest is uh, the evolution of slang. So kids can get their parents and their grandparents involved, like, okay, we call this uh, groovy back in the day. This is what we call it, you know, in the 70s. This is what, oh, why do you think that evolved? Now let's look at the history of the, the word and how words evolve. Get kids curious. They don't have to hit a standard, but they can consolidate. I'll stop there because I can go on. That's okay. That's okay. Well, I think a, a, a big part of it, too, uh, based on reading your book is um, the idea of a learning partnership because partnership central to what we do too, but to see how people see that this is a learning partnership. It's not you. And that gets back to your cognitive load. I'm not responsible for making them do everything. I'm a partner in this learning process with them. That's right. Well, think of it this way. The personal trainer is not getting down there doing your push-ups. No, <laughs> that's a good point. You to do them. I'm up to two. I'm really trying to get push-ups down. I'm like, good for uh, you. well, two is a huge, you know, getting to one yeah, was a big step, you know, now it's just, I'm it's, doing. it's going to be a hundred in no time. Um, so I have a few questions from, that we had many questions submitted online. And I just want to touch on a few of them. And then I'd like yeah. to come back and ask a question about TLC. So this first question is, what should rigor look like in our current, and you've addressed many of these things along the way, so yeah. just whatever you want to add to it, but what should rigor look like in our current online schooling? How much is enough? Too much? Right now, we're working to support academics and social emotional learning while working with the challenges of learning at home, where we don't have 100% of the students participating. What should it look like in the event schools continue virtually in the fall? What shifts might happen to support all learners? That's a great question because it takes us back to the top of our conversation, the beginning of it, where we talked about this idea of how are you igniting intellectual curiosity? So rigor shouldn't just be more. Rigor shouldn't be, it's so hard that the student just says, I'm not even going to try. You have to be able to say, how do I actually get the student where they are and kind of anchor them there and twist them just a little above their level, right? Mm -hmm. And so getting them to try something just a little more difficult, uh, I think is really an important part. I think we need to dial it down. Less is definitely more when we're talking about distance learning, but the less is not, you know, okay, we don't need to do any thinking. The less is small, high leverage things that are still getting to kids to do cognitive work. 
And they need to be doing that cognitive work in ways that don't look like school. Right? And so that's what I would suggest. So the rigor is really about giving them more time for consolidation, hiding the vegetables, right? So putting it in there where they're taking things apart, putting it together. You know there's rigor there. But for the students, it's like, oh, wow, I'm doing this fun thing that's kind of stretching me. But right. I like Well, and deep and motivated by their interests, you know, and given that once you've got an interest that the child's got, if they can go deep into that, it's going to help them build that conceptual knowledge, build their confidence if they start to have mastery. So, Absolutely. Um, second question. As a teacher, I feel torn between reworking my weekly lessons to respond to what's going on around us and keeping things consistent from week to week so that my kids know what to expect. Which approach do you recommend in times of uncertainty? Consistency or redoing everything every week? I think it's a both and rather than an either or. So mm -hmm. the, the, the piece that I think is consistent needs to be the uh, uh, social emotional on-ramp. Right. Kids brains respond to routine of some type. So that's going to reduce the stress. So if you're thinking you're responding, you're you're, you know, changing things up to be responsive is going to reduce the stress. It's actually going to have the opposite effect. It's going to produce more stress because now every week is different. So creating enough of a frame to help students know, oh, this is the stuff we're doing but to also put book end it with the social emotional piece, right? So being able to have some way kids are coming together and still be a community of learners, be, you know, having a manifesto or a creed, or even it could be a poem that they're all reading together at the start of that. It could be a moment of mindfulness together, right? How are you going to maintain those so that they are the bookend? They're the first few minutes when you start. They're the first few minutes when you end. Let that be a level of consistency and routine. Now, what the lesson looks like should also be about how do I help the student progress so that they are continuing to uh, grow intellectually. It may not be by new content, but it may by, be by consolidating what they already know. So I don't mm -hmm. think we need to rework a lot of stuff. I think we need to kind of get the portion size right for kids. Right. Well, this gets to the next question that this person said. Do you think that the less is more philosophy with assigning work is appropriate right now for remote learning? And if so, how do you encourage equity with this idea so that all teachers are on board? Yeah, I think less is more. This is where the science of learning becomes important because it's not just, hey, do less work. It's like the things we're going to choose are going to be the three most high leverage things we can do that if we put this in the hands of parents and kids, learning will happen anyway. This is what Montessori does. And so one of the things I talked about in my recent webinar was everything's a remix. Where are we taking the, the some of the philosophy of Montessori, which is you prepare the environment, then the child is always going to bump into learning. You don't have to oversee it all the time. So because kids aren't in your, in your presence, we are worried that they're not going to be doing the thing, right? But the fact is their brain is a learning machine. So the less part is still high leverage. The less part should not be, oh, it's just hard work. It's no, how do we give them thinking routines? How do we give them uh, uh, inquiry where there are several pieces of it. This is project-based learning, right? Where they're having to put something together and then think about and be reflective about it. So that less should be really, really powerful. Not necessarily hard, but powerful. 
Yeah, and there's so many things there. Um, uh, nature journals and uh, oh. going deep into literature and uh, just spending time reading. And there's uh, Charlotte Mason is an old theorist who talks a lot about the things that Maria Montessori talks about too. And it's really influenced our way of thinking about what it looks like when you have a one-to-one -one conversation. Translating that into a larger group is tougher though. Yeah, and here's the thing I would say is that is those principles are uh, applicable no matter what the community, no matter what the household, because there's a way in which we want to think, oh, well, parents right. can't do that because they don't. No, Maria Montessori actually started that approach to accelerate the learning for uh, poor children that were marginalized. So mm -hmm. again, she showed whatever is in your environment can be an opportunity for learning that parents and grandparents and community members have funds of knowledge that you can tap in. It could be that they're teaching you to crochet and that you're learning some math from crocheting. It could be that, right, there are ways in which, though, you have to know enough about who your kids are and who your families are. Mm -hmm. it, it uncovers the fact that we don't know enough about that. Okay, I've got two more, three more questions. Sure. So what's your favorite way to coach teachers around getting students to make their thinking visible? The primary thing is um, I really like the idea of thinking about cognitive routines. This is why I think the work out of Project Zero and the um, uh, uh, making mm -hmm. thinking visible work is so powerful. But I, I have seen it misapplied. I've seen the thinking routines at, used as strategies for teachers rather than tools given to the student. So that the teacher is coaching the student to internalize them. So the one that I like a lot is purpose, parts, and complexities. So a student can take apart a computer and say, what are the parts? Well, what's the purpose? What are the complexities? How do they go from whole to part to part to whole? How did this evolve? How did we? So there's so much richness there, right? And so the degree to which we now help the students see that when you look at anything, always ask, what's the purpose? What are the parts? What are the complexities? But I see teachers almost hoarding the thinking routines. And they kind of, they're, they're guiding kids through them to the point where the kid thinks, oh, that's just questions the teacher asked me and doesn't see it as this is a powerful, a tool. internalized alg mental algorithm I can use mm -hmm. to help me level up my learning and go deeper with anything. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. Um, <laughs> last question here, and then I have one more question. I'm an instructional coach, and I'm wanting to use your Ready for Rigor framework to provide professional learning and support teachers in goal setting. I understand the framework to be comprehensive and connected, but is it possible to tackle small components at a time? Or how would you recommend using the framework to support teachers' work? You've been answering that question all day, but we'll come back to it as a closing kind of question. Yeah, I think it's, a, uh, um, and, and this coach has is, is got the right idea, that people need to know the whole as kind of, these are interlocking parts, the parts, the purpose, and the complexities. That's right. And, but the reality is we can only work on one thing at a time. So the way that I support coaches is to help teachers think about what's the lead domino. Where will we start? So you can help a teacher look into the classroom and say, where do you have strengths? Right? Where do you feel like, hmm, I really don't 
you know, I don't have good relationships with my students or I have really good relationships, but that doesn't translate in me being able to help them kind of level up their learning, right? And so helping teachers start and, and you say it a lot, right? Start with where their interest is, but help them anchor that in the larger frame. All these things eventually have to come together, but you get to start with where your interest is. And now we have to fold those other things in over time because naturally I think they will take them. You don't just become culturally responsive overnight. You first have to be more responsive. You first have to say, how do I have, do, is this classroom intellectually safe? Right? It, 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 can I get kids to track their own progress? So these small components are the building blocks that over time they create a synergetic effect. So think about what the lead domino is, let the teacher pick that. But the idea is like, we have these 10 things, where would you like to start? And this is that idea of choice, but it's mm. not so open-ended that the teacher is picking something that doesn't, they're already comfortable with, right? They're over here in left field when they really right. need to be over here. No, that's a, that's, that's a really important part about that, this that um, you're teaching me, you know, that it's, it's not just like whatever it is, we, we have to have a limit on what the choices are. Absolutely. You've been taking me to school today, Zaretta. That's great. I'm, I'm better educated. I can't wait for our next conversation because I'm... I, it always push, happens like this. Yeah, you push me every time. And um, yeah, and I need it. So I'm grateful. Um, so you, we are hoping that we'll have our teaching, learning, coaching conference. You're one of our keynoters. and. Yeah. Um, uh, we're pretty excited about the, we have a great, great lineup. And uh, I've seen you present many times, so I'm thrilled you're going to come. Could you tell us a bit about what you're planning to talk about in the event that we're able to have the conference? Well, you know, I really want to talk about, and I'm working on my second book. I pushed it back a little bit, and I'm glad I did because it was supposed to come out this summer. But with everything going on, I think it'll be really uh, better served when it comes out maybe later next year. But I think the topic is still relevant and that's instructional equity. And how are we coaching for instructional equity? And I think it's even more powerful than getting caught up in culturally responsive, right? Because that, like, what is the culturally and the people think it's some exotic thing they do. Mm -hmm. but what I want us to return to is the conversation around instructional equity. How do I get the student to actually level up their cognition mm -hmm. through their choice of learning moves, right? Error analysis, like, oh, you've taught me five strategies. I'm task analysis. These are the two I should do. And these are the ways I'm going to track my learning. Just that little piece, there's a lot of mm -hmm. coaching. We could do that an academic year with a teacher to help the teacher really figure out. That's how I got my writing students to improve their writing. Because only the learner learns. So I'm really excited to help people kind of keep the student as the center of change, but to actually like a personal trainer, I got to get you to get more healthy habits. I've got to get you to get good form when you're doing those push-ups. But I can't just tell you get good form. Right? Right. That's some instruction. There's some guidance. There's some coaching. So I want to apply this, this idea to how we help uh, teachers help students to carry more of the cognitive load in classrooms and not just do this kind of, everything is culturally responsive, right? Culturally responsive practice is real, but you actually have to know what it is. And it's not just because you're using the words over and over again. Well, and I think you need a coach to make it happen. 
You do. I, really think, I you really think you do. I think you need a collaborative community. You need either lesson study or action research, but more importantly, you need a guide. And the instructional coach is that linchpin. The instructional coach can help you see what you don't see. But here's the thing, and this is what I want to talk about at TLC, is you also, that means that coach has to level up their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not yep. going to get a personal trainer who's going to, you know, injure you every time you go, and now you've got a bum knee and a bad back. You actually have someone that helps you progress because they know their stuff. So capacity building among coaches, that's like the next piece of this work for me. I'm very passionate about that. Yeah, we say they have to be experts with expertise, but they don't act like experts. They show up like partners, yeah. Absolutely. Zaretta, every conversation I have with you, I'm a slightly better person, thanks to what you do, (laughs) what you put me through. So I always enjoy it. I always enjoy it. I'm grateful. You you really are uh, a force of nature, as Dan said, but you're a force for good too, and you you're helping me uh, be better at what I do. And uh, now I have a long list of books I've got to read because of this. <laughs> I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much. I'm really really grateful. You're very welcome. Take care. Thank you. Bye.